0: Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues from the perspective of the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's baha dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Jean and Phyllis Unterschutz a Baha'i couple from the Midwest who, after their nest of children was emptied, decided to hit the road in service to communities throughout the U.S., promoting the principles of the Baha'i faith primarily in the area of race unity. I started the interview by asking Jean how he ran into the Baha'i faith.
1: I was uh, pretty confused uh, at that time in my life. Uh, I, I was really looking for some sense of order. And uh, I was dabbling in various philosophies. I think there was a guy named Alan Watts at the time who was very popular, mm. and I was reading a lot of things by him. However, nothing really seemed to have staying power. In other words, it it seemed it, it brought some kind of um, a rush of of um, hmm, what should I say. I guess elation—the only thing I can think—that you found something that finally makes sense out of things, and then you realize that it's just part of everything else. It doesn't really unify the whole big picture, you know. So when I found the, and how I found the faith—is uh, I was doing some substitute teaching in a school system, and uh, and after that, I had a couple of, uh, of kind of brainless jobs, just kind of kicking around. <laughs> And I met a guy, and he invited me to Baha'i Fireside, and um, I was very impressed right away. I was fairly um, anti-religious at the time, mm-hmm. uh, didn't really understand what religion was all about, and mm-hmm. I just really uh, didn't have a lot of respect for religion. But when I walked into this, this house, a private house, mm-hmm. uh, I was very impressed with just how they were speaking, how they were... Uh, relating to me, you know, I, it was f- way beyond my expectations.
0: Mm-hmm. So it knocked down these anti-religious barriers almost immediately? Or?
1: I have to say I just, ha- I just really felt something very powerful about the mm-hmm. experience right from the, mm-hmm. right from the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: It kind of cut through a lot of uh, concepts that I had about religion.
0: Mm-hmm. Now about you, Phyllis? How did you end up running into the Baha'i faith?
2: Uh, i I was a member of the Methodist Church and uh, had a very close relationship with christ i 'm one of these people that used to cry on Good Friday every year and and get all giddy on easter sunday and um, But as I got into high school, I got more and more um, had more and more difficulties understanding the things that the church was teaching and my senior year of high school, I had a teacher who Interpreted the Bible very literally, and so a lot of the the questions that he answered, he answered in a, in a literal way, which didn't make a lot of sense to me.
3: Mm.
2: And uh, then when, when I remember one time he was talking about how uh, only Christians were going to heaven and everybody else was going to hell, mm. and I remember saying, "But last week's lesson was God created everybody and God loves everybody, and I don't understand this." Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I have to I have to find something different. Mm. And so I went off to college at that point, uh, thinking that I was going to find a different church that agreed more with what I believed, because my mother had taught me and my grandmother both had taught me all my life uh, that that everybody was of value and that mm. it wasn't okay to discriminate against people. And it was my father's mother that and my grandmother, whose house we lived in, and she also. Uh, taught me so many spiritual concepts that were a part of me, and I needed a religion that validated the things I already believed. So I went off to college thinking I was looking for a different church, and I did actually go to several different churches. But uh, the the reason that I started looking into the Baha'i faith had really nothing to do with religion originally. Uh, the, the community I grew up in was an all-white community. There were uh, I think there were two African-American families, if I remember correctly. But I had never talked to anybody face-to-face that mm. wasn't white. Mm-hmm. And when I got down to college, I went to Illinois Wesleyan University in Bloomington, Illinois, down in the middle of the cornfields. And... Um, this uh, this was, I guess, the year before had been an all-white campus. And then the year that I got down there, they had probably 30 black students. Mm. And these students were very segregated. Mm-hmm. They had their own table uh, in the cafeteria. They had their own dorm rooms. And they were just kind of pretty much kept to themselves. Mm. But there was one exception, one, one young man who seemed to function like a magnet. I would watch him. And he would walk through the quad and... Wherever he walked, he attracted black and white to him. Hmm. And he would form these interracial groups that would be walking along together. And I just thought, I didn't know how he did that. I had never seen anything like that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, it took me about, I think it took me about three months to work up my courage to talk to him. Because as I said, I had never talked before to anybody who was black. Mm. And uh, we both worked in the, in the cafeteria together to make money for our tuition. We worked in the dish room, and he was the one that loaded the dishwasher. And I sorted the silverware. <laughs> and I remember finally one day just screwing up my courage and walking up to him and saying, okay, what is it that makes you different? Mm. And uh, and he said to me, you know, I've been watching you, watch me, and I've been waiting for you to ask. Mm. It's the power of the Baha'i faith that makes mm. me different. Mm-hmm. And so then as he started teaching me what, what Baha'u'llah had mm-hmm. taught, I found that it was everything that I already believed in. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying, this just makes so much sense to me. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that was when I became a Baha'i. That was in 1968.
0: Okay. So Gene, once you became a Baha'i, did it sort of change your direction in any way in life?
1: Well, for one thing, I I, uh, immediately developed a respect for uh, the whole concept of religion. I had no idea what religion was about mm-hmm. prior to my encounter with Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting in discussion groups. We refer to them as firesides okay. about uh, their discussion groups about the Baha'i faith and religion in general mm-hmm. and and looking around at the other youth and thinking, what is it that, they, what, what's uh, attracting them to these, to these get-togethers? You know, it's more than just a, a bunch of youth having fun. They seem like they're um, they're attracted to something more than just each other and just fun. Mm. Yeah. Uh, something deeper. Something deeper, and they could have fun, mm. but they could also get very serious. And they also could have like several hours long uh, prayer sessions if the if the need warranted something like that. If there was some issue. Uh, that somebody was having, and they would gather together in a room off to the side and form a little circle and say say prayers for hours and hours. Mm. So that was different. I, it was nothing that I had ever experienced before.
0: So you were among these youth?
1: Yeah, I participated mm. in that. Mm-hmm. I remember um, I, I was going to these meetings for about three months mm-hmm. and trying to decide for myself is Baha'u'llah, who he claims to be. Mm-hmm. And I really got to a point where I thought, I have to get out of this environment, this Baha'i environment, to kind of be in a little vacuum or something so I can think clearly. Mm-hmm. It turns out that my brother was uh, studying abroad at the time in Germany, so I, I made arrangements to go visit him and spend some time with him. And so while I was over there, we he had he had a break and we... We traveled around and um, stayed in various youth hostels. And everywhere I went, I would ask people, do you know about the Baha'i Faith? Have you heard about the Baha'i Faith? Mm. And nobody had. Mm. So I would have to tell them whatever I knew, Mm. hoping that they would say, oh, oh yes, I guess I did. Or maybe somebody, I know this guy that knows something about the Baha'i Faith. You know, that somehow I would get some added little evidence that would tip me over, you know, and Mm -hmm. convince me. And I remember uh, that we were in a youth hostel, and uh, it was time for to eat dinner. And I told my brother to go on, that I had to stay behind for a moment. And I just, I just said, I've got to decide, is Baha'u'llah who he claims he is mm. or not? Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I just said, well... I believe it's true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and from that moment on, that was that. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: You were committed to the Baha'i faith. Yeah,
1: I was committed, yeah. yeah.
0: And Phyllis, how about you? Well, I guess you we sort of left the story in the middle there. The, the, your coworker in the kitchen told you that he was a Baha'i, and then what happened mm-hmm. after that?
2: I went to Firesides for about three months, and that was yeah. about as long as it took me to decide that this was mm-hmm. what I had been looking for mm. all of my my long 18-year life, you know. Mm-hmm. So I became a Baha'i at that point mm-hmm. and um, was a part of the Baha'i College Club down there. Well, after Gina and I got married, and we, our daughter was born about a year after, a little over a year after we got married, and then a year after that, we went pioneering together to Germany. Okay. So our whole family went over, and our, yeah. our other two children were born over in Germany, so we, we left with one child and came mm-hmm. back five years later with three.
0: Mm-hmm. What part of Germany?
2: The name of the town is Fürth. It's outside of Nuremberg.
0: Okay. So when you were in Germany, in addition to being involved in the Baha'i community, what did you do for livelihood and that kind of thing?
1: I worked at a German company. Um, I had already begun a career in graphic arts. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, I found a place that hired me. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a tricky thing. You have to have a a work permit and a, a residence permit. But sometimes you go to one office and they say, "We, well, you, you can't get a work permit because you don't have a residence permit, and you kind of run back and forth between the offices. But mm-hmm. everything got squared away, and I, I had a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really learned a lot from, from the German way of doing things. They're very thorough mm-hmm. about um, producing everything, even their graphic art. Mm-hmm. So it was a great learning experience. And then uh, although I had a couple of years of German in college, uh, it was very elementary. Very, I, it was very difficult me, for me to really express complex thoughts. Mm. And um, so I studied every night when I went home. I studied German, and then there was a colleague there that was he enjoyed languages, and so he helped me with his uh, with with my German. Mm. I would practice the whatever the conjunctive or something, and he would say, "Sehr <laughs> gute Unterschütz, you know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not always.
0: <but laughs> I guess you had rudimentary German when you started working, but it must have been a challenge.
1: It was challenging. I yeah. mean, there were uh, numerous situations, and yeah, I mean, I was—they had a silk screen factory, you know. So I worked my first six months there in mm-hmm. the silk screen factory, yeah. and and there were a lot of things. That you had to do just Mm. as a as an employee Mm. and sometimes you didn't do things right and you wanted to say well if I had known that I would have done that (laughs) and all I could say is well I didn't know that I know it now and I will know it next time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And Phyllis, how about you? Was your German uh, up to par when you got there?
2: My German was non-existent when <laughs> I got there. We had actually originally thought we would go to Switzerland because okay. I spoke French and he spoke some German, and we thought, okay, Switzerland is the best choice, but Switzerland did not want us. They didn't want any, <laughs> any immigrants of any kind, especially Americans at the time. Hmm. So we ended up, we figured he's going to be the one working, so it's more important to go to a place where he can speak the mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. And I had no German at all, and I had some pretty... I remember I would take my one-year-old daughter out, and I'd try to go shopping, and people would holler at me. I found out later on, they just holler. It wasn't me, it was just their cultural way. But I would come back to the apartment and cry and think, what am I doing here? <laughs> and uh, But I worked really hard, and I got Berlitz tapes, and I went to uh, the, the Volkshochschule, which is like the uh, community college, after, I think we'd been there about six months before I went there, and then I started learning the grammar and stuff. Mm, mm. But uh, but it was difficult. It was particularly, I remember when our second daughter was born, yeah. um, who lives here in Northampton, at least for the next few days. Um, and uh, I was in the hospital when she was born, and I my German was just not very good at that time at all. And these nurses would they would talk to me and i didn't understand them and i would say what what and they would they would say it louder as if that would help me understand it <laughs> so it was all a little bit intimidating mm. until i got to the point where i could speak mm. it fluently and i did eventually got uh w- got a job for the army on the weekends i would go with um the army wives or you know the spouses and families of uh, the uh people that were stationed over there because there was a large military presence in nuremberg And they would take these bus trips to different parts of Germany. And uh, usually the bus driver only spoke German. And so I would go along as an interpreter, and I would get a free trip. And I don't think they paid me very much, but they paid me something, and it was a lot of fun, and I got to Mm -hmm. practice the interpreting. you
0: know. Yeah, your German has to be pretty good if you start interpreting. Yeah, now it's good. I wish it
2: had been good before I went. I would have saved myself a lot of grief, I think.
0: (laughs) Right. So you were there for five years. Mm -hmm. What were the circumstances that had you leave Germany?
2: I think our our oldest daughter was, was ready to start school, and mm. um, I know I had my misgivings about starting her in school there because the school system there is just incredibly strict. Mm. It seemed to me overly strict for a five-year-old child. I saw these five- and six-year-old kids walking home from school with these backpacks loaded down with books to do their homework, and I mm. thought, nah, I don't know if I really mm. want to do that to my kids, so... Mm-hmm. I think we were ready to come back after mm-hmm. five years and just mm-hmm. kind of take our life up again here in the states.
0: Mm-hmm. Where did you guys settle in? When we came states? back yeah. from Germany, yeah. uh,
2: we we moved to Huntley, Illinois, which is all mm-hmm. a far northwest suburb. Lived there while our kids were young um, mm-hmm. for about nine or nine or ten years, I guess, and then mm-hmm. we moved to Crystal Lake after that, which is also right in that area, mm-hmm. both about forty forty five miles northwest mm-hmm. of Chicago.
0: Mm-hmm. And Gene, you were able to find work when you got back to the United States?
1: Yeah, I found work um pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, they were impressed with my the skills I had acquired in Germany mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was that was good mm-hmm. The most important thing for us as Baha'i parents um, was to get our kids together with other Baha'i kids and why was uh, that you know um it's the thing is that at home, in the household, mm-hmm. uh, we're raising our children with, you know, certain value, a certain value system, and a lot of those values, or maybe all those values, come from the texts of the Bahá'í Faith. Mm-hmm. For instance, one of the teachings is no backbiting. Mm-hmm. So we felt it was necessary for our kids to be with other kids that were receiving the same home training Mm -hmm. and sharing the same value system. Mm -hmm. I mean, I felt that way as an adult in various uh, employment situations and so forth, Mm -hmm. where I felt, um, uh, you know, kind of lonely, uh, kind of alone, you know, because I didn't share the the exact same value system as others. I mean, when you when you're in a work situation, you're almost in any situation. Backbiting kind of uh, kind of takes place, uh, and nobody even questions it. Right. You know, sometimes somebody might shut off if they see the person they're backbiting, but come around the corner or something. But basically, people don't don't really understand how devastating mm. backbiting is, mm-hmm. and we understand it as Bahais only through. A, attempting to eliminate that because many of us, like me, come from uh, uh, you know another value system where uh, backbiting is just accepted. And now, all of a sudden, we have to strive to eliminate backbiting from our behavior. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes apparent how difficult that is. And we start to appreciate the mm-hmm. value of it. And we, over time, I think... We see the benefits of that, because of course, we're hoping people aren't backbiting about us, mm-hmm. you know, and when we find out that people aren't backing, backbiting about us, <laughs> we realize how, how valuable that, that mm. particular teaching is. And also, there are times when backbiting does become a problem, and, and you can see how, how harmed people become, mm. how, how it can just really inflict real pain on individuals and even groups of individuals. I mean, stereotyping is kind of like one huge form of backbiting. Mm -hmm.
2: Just thinking about that time, those years when my kids were growing up, and I mean, they're adults now, all three of them, and Mm -hmm. I look at the kind of people they have become. You know, I know that I was not a perfect parent, and so I can't say, well, look, they've become such marvelous people because Mm -hmm. I did such a good job parenting them, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, they had other factors influencing their life, and and the Baha'i teachings have been uh, the the main factor influencing all three of their lives. Mm -hmm. I I think one of the things we we thought uh, talked about a lot when they were growing up uh, was the whole concept of of spiritual testing. Mm -hmm. And when I look at all three of them today, I realize that they understand this process way better than I ever did. Mm-hmm. uh this this understanding that like like when you're exercising a muscle if you want the muscle to develop and grow you have to work it and it's sometimes painful and if mm-hmm. you don't work it 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 stays weak
3: mm-hmm.
2: spiritual attributes are are like muscles in that way and that if you want to grow spiritually and develop attributes mm-hmm. you're going to have to face tests and difficulties Mm. and uh, that that makes you stronger. And, mm. and if you don't face that, that you, you, those muscles atrophy and you become weak. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a, a dynamic that was a, a part of our awareness as a family when our kids were growing up.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It must have been, or they wouldn't yeah. understand it so well now. Mm. And I, I think that's a really powerful thing. That's something I'm grateful for.
3: Mm.
0: So after the kids grew up, what was sort of the next phase in your life?
2: Well, in mine, uh, when when our youngest one started junior high, Mm -hmm. uh, I decided to go back to work. I had Mm -hmm. worked before I was married, but hadn't worked. I'd I'd done some part-time work with my dad's business. I actually trained as a hearing aid specialist and learned how to sell hearing aids, because that's Mm -hmm. what my dad was doing. Mm -hmm. So I could do that part-time when the kids were in school, but salesmanship was not my My forte. (laughs) I I felt so sorry for all these people with the hearing loss and no money to buy the hearing aids. Mm, (laughs) Um, So I uh, decided to go back to work. And uh, because I spoke German, I applied for a job in in the um, U.S. branch of a German company who hired me simply because I spoke German. I knew nothing about importing and exporting, which is what I ended up doing. It was kind of on the job Sink or swim mm. sort of training.
0: And you didn't lose any of your German over the twenty years. No,
2: I I don't think so. I don't know how I managed not to. I guess I just took. I don't know how I managed not <laughs> to lose my German, but <laughs> I, but I didn't. <laughs> the problem I did have, though, was that I had learned German not in school so much, but I had learned it in Germany, and mm. so I learned it with a, with a South B- Bavarian accent. So when I got into this company, who that was, uh, the the parent company was in um, in Stuttgart. They had a whole different accent. I mean, a completely different dialect. And the first day I got on the phone with them, because my boss said we hired you because tomorrow you can pick up the phone and speak German, and that's what we want. We'll teach you the rest. And I picked up the phone and started talking to these people. I thought, oh no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> but I picked it up pretty pretty soon. I was speaking with a Stuttgart accent myself. <laughs> So I worked at that company for uh, I guess about eight years, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a it was a very interesting experience. It was I, I it was a good experience in the sense that I learned a lot of skills. I did a lot. Of, I worked internationally all the time. I worked with customs and with international shipping. Mm-hmm. It was a very challenging job, and uh, I really loved it. Mm. It was also a, a company that was very male dominated and and the sexism was kind of written right into their code of ethics, I think, and so mm. it was challenging in in that respect yeah um, but i did I, I did really learn a lot there
0: and
1: I guess Jean, you kept on
0: working as the
1: yeah at one point I decided to um, I, I I had this idea that I wanted to get into education, so i um, I entered into a master 's course for art education and after about three semesters, I got a little bit discouraged because other than the severe cut in pay, uh, I would ha- not be able to practice the nifty things I was learning in school because we were studying this fantastic th- theory about art. I was pretty sad about that because it would have been nice to kind of plug into a school system and really... Have hands-on experience and watch kids develop with this new approach to art. Right. So I, I switched over to studio art and got my masters in that. So that's one of the things I did. Mm-hmm. And then another thing that was more work re- directly work related when computers kind of finally made it into mainstream around the middle '80s, '86, something like that. Mm-hmm. I asked to be tra- sent to school to get trained on computers, and eventually. Learned how to do graphics mm. on computers instead mm-hmm. of on a drawing board, so that was mm-hmm. that was pretty neat. Mm-hmm. So I'm one of the older folks that can actually that <laughs> actually feels comfortable <laughs> with computers. <laughs> <laughs> and then what was the
0: next phase in your life?
2: Well, we went to a Baha'i conference. It was called the Green Lake Conference. It was in in Wisconsin, and this was in 1996 in the fall. Mm. And at the time we went all three of our children were leaving home. Mm. So here we were rattling around in this big house, and we were just kind of continuing our ordinary lives. Mm -hmm. And we went to this uh, conference in 96, and one of the speakers there, the theme of the conference was so great an honor. Mm. And all of the talks and the sessions were about considering how uh, important this time was in our lives, what Mm. a special time it was, and how how uh, crucial it was for us to do something out of the ordinary mm-hmm. during this time in our lives. Mm-hmm. Do something different. Seize mm-hmm. your chance. This was kind of what all of the talks were about. Mm-hmm. And so uh, not not long before that, I think Gene had uh, started freelancing. He was doing freelance work at home.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I was kind of getting somewhat fed up with the job I was in, kind of irritated with some of the attitudes and looking for a change. Right. And so we left the, uh, the, the main session of this, this one conference, and mm-hmm. we got into our car. We were driving back to our tent, and for some reason that neither one of us understands, we looked at each other and we said, let's sell our house and buy a travel trailer and go travel teaching the Baha'i Faith around the country. It was a crazy idea when you think about it.
0: Yeah, and you both were like in sync with this at the same moment in time?
2: We were, and that's what was strange, because I am a very sequential, sort of a step-by-step thinker. I arrive at things in a very step-by-step, linear Mm -hmm. sort of a way. Mm -hmm. And Gene is very much a holistic thinker, and he takes wild lateral leaps to the side, and We've, we never come up with the same thing at the same time. We may eventually, but we right. get there very differently. Yeah. And so the fact that we both came up with this idea in the car
3: mm. is kind of odd, mm. really.
2: Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we took a year. That was in September of 96. And uh, so we took a year to get our affairs in order, to sell our house. I quit my job Mm -hmm. and get our, you know, whatever medical care we needed to get done or anything like that. And Mm -hmm. then in September of 97, we sold our house, put our house on the market, and we bought this little bitty 22-foot-long travel trailer and a van to pull it with. And uh, we left, (laughs) (laughs) thinking that we were going to be gone for maybe six months. I think oh, really? That, was, that our, was your initial I think so. We thought concept. six months to a year, or six months, and then maybe when we're tired of it, we'll get a smaller house because the kids are gone. or I don't know what we thought we were going to do after that. We were just going to take off in gypsy-like fashion and... Uh, we, our goal was to travel around and to visit various Baha'i communities around the country, mm-hmm. kind of get a feel for the stage of development that the different communities were in, mm-hmm. and offer ourselves to be of service in whatever way they wanted. We, mm-hmm. would, we would give public talks or speak at firesides about whatever topic they wanted us to speak on. We were mm-hmm. very f- free-floating about the whole thing.
0: So, Jean, what was what, the f- first place you headed for when you, you
1: left home? One day, Phyllis typed out uh, four letters to each of the regional committees that were in existence at the time, talking, telling them about uh, our desire to be of service mm-hmm. and, and to to be mobile. Mm-hmm. And so she instructed me to drop those in the mailbox. <laughs> so at the end of the day, she she asked me, "Did you mail those letters?" I said, "Yep." I took them to the mailbox. They're all winging their way, you know, into mm-hmm. the four corners of the. United States. We were just going to send the one to the <laughs> she, Western. Region. Just, just, yeah. Oh, we, I think. we really wanted to go west, and uh, Hector, we mm-hmm. we were really um, excited about visiting that part of the United States. West was just a real calling, and so. But what happened is, all four letters got sent out, and she mm-hmm. was dismayed. You know, we didn't know what was going <laughs> which one was going to land first. A couple later we got a call from uh, one of the members of the uh, Eastern Council. And she said, uh, got your letter? Uh, we're ready to have you come out this way. And so we said feebly, well, but we want to go west. <laughs> and she said, she she asked, rather, uh, did anybody else respond to your letters? Has anybody else invited you to their region? And we said, well, no. We had to be <laughs> honest. She said, okay, well, I'm expecting you to come out here. <laughs> so we did. Mm-hmm. So it was a mad rush. Uh, well, we actually, there was some time where we had to get our trailer, mm. learn how to pull it, which mm. was pretty traumatic, <laughs> and outfit it with dishes and, right. and stuff that we needed. Yeah. And then we pulled out one evening at 10 o'clock at night yeah. because we were already a day late, in our scheduling and we said we can't wait another day we can't wait till we can't get a good night's sleep and pull out at 11 o'clock tomorrow that's just not going to work it's got to be 10 o'clock at night so we we pulled out and we headed eastward and i think Mm -hmm. our first our first stop our first destination was buffalo new york
0: oh okay and what time of year were we talking
1: this was in uh, autumn September. september okay yeah
0: all right so you were heading for new england just about winter time
2: well, we we were we didn't quite realize yet now we know more about when you should be <laughs> where <laughs> in the trailer and uh, oh, but we did see some spectacular uh, scenery and some beautiful mm. foliage oh, we yeah. through New York for sure and uh, we i think we were by the time it really got cold we were already down into Washington DC area okay. so uh, yeah. We didn't have too many troubles with the cold mm, that mm-hmm, year.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds like you got stories of other we years. We do have stories of <laughs> other years. Yeah, it
2: took us a while to learn. Yeah. <laughs> I think with New my... England. What was important in New England? I guess I want to say at this point is that the the uh, the probably the most important philosophy mm. that directs my life as a Baha'i mm. is that. God is in control of everything that happens. Mm. We have free will and I don't know how those two work together but I believe that God is in control. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love that, that Mm. makes me feel safe and happy. Mm -hmm. I'm glad Mm -hmm. I'm not the one. (laughs) And uh, so there are so many things that have happened to us Mm. and particularly since we've been on the road. When you're in motion, there's more opportunity for these things to happen. Mm. Where we think we know what we're doing and what's going to happen. And it Mm. turns out to be something completely different. And so I say that as a preface to say that when we were in um, New England, we were giving talks in these different communities uh, about, well, we were talking about gender equality, which is one of the principles of the Baha'i faith. But if you'll remember previously, I talked to you about this this dynamic of testing. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you pretend you know something, normally you get hit with a test. And so... We learned fairly early on not to say that we were experts on gender equality, because a 22-foot trailer is a very small place to realize you still have to work on that. <laughs> so um, we quit talking about that fairly early on, I think. <laughs> <laughs> But what we did do in New England was we started meeting, going into communities and meeting African-American Baha'is. And... I now refer to it as the taxi driver slash bartender slash hairdresser syndrome. Mm. People would talk to us in a way that they would not talk to people that lived in their communities. Mm. I think because we were itinerant, we were just moving through, and so we had this anonymity and this safety like a like a taxi driver does.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so people kind of opened up to us about some of the, the struggles that they were having. And, um, you know, my my experience with race was... I had had the experience of this this man that taught me the Baha'i faith, who was the man that I was engaged to, and and ended up not marrying. But mm-hmm. I'd had, you know, the experience of being with him and learning something about how racism functions in the United States. But it was fairly limited. And our Baha'i beliefs are that racial prejudice must be eliminated, and that racial unity is at the basis of any kind of any kind of peace and prosperity for this world. You know. Mm-hmm. So, we have had this belief in the oneness of humanity in the elimination of prejudice all of our Baha'i lives. However, we had no practical hands on experience with what that looks like and So, as we traveled around in New England and, and met more and more african American Baha'is and heard about their daily struggles, you know how they deal with the racism that impacts them.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: we realized that this was a very important topic for Baha'i communities to be talking about. And so we began, as we continued throughout New England, to bring this topic up. Uh, we were in New London, Connecticut, which was, a, uh, which was a community where all of the Baha'is were African American at that particular time. Mm. And we were just taken in, embraced by these friends that treated us like family and shared with us some very passionate stories about their lives. And it, mm. that whole process began to hone us and uh, focus us. And we started to feel like the race unity work was what we were being called to do. And from New England, we went south, uh, and it turned out that really that was the case. That was exactly what we were being prepared to do. And the longer we do this work, the more we can see how our whole lives have kind of led us up to the point where we were ready to do this and called Mm. to do it. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a funny story uh, about... Uh, what happened when we left New England? It was starting to get chilly, mm-hmm. and um, we we looked. I have this book called Full Timing in Your RV, and I I remembered that there was a chapter that said uh, full uh, RVing in the cold weather or something like that. And so I pulled the book out and I opened it up to that chapter. And the first sentence says, "Your RV was not designed for use in cold weather," <laughs> and so I realized we had to get south. And I mm-hmm. said, "Well, we've never been to Florida. Let's go to Florida." Mm-hmm. And so I called this woman who was uh, on the regional committee of the southern states, and she was in Florida, and I said, I think we'd like to come down there and be of service. She said, we have much work for you to do down here. So I got on my map, and I looked, and I saw Interstate I-95, and it went from where we were to Florida. And I said, well, look at that. It goes right through South Carolina and right past the Lewis Gregory Baha'i Institute, which oh, was a place we'd always heard of and wanted to visit.
0: And what is it, by the way?
2: It's a, it's a permanent Baha'i school, mm-hmm. and it's uh, where, where Baha'i courses are taught, and it's mm-hmm. also a center of service to the wider mm-hmm. community. And it's named after Louis Gregory, who was an African-American Baha'i man. Uh, he, he was, during the 1920s and 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. he traveled around in the South uh, at a time when segregation and, and you know the Jim Crow laws made life very dangerous for him. And he taught the oneness of humanity during mm. that time. So he's quite a hero to most Baha'is. Mm. And this institute was named after him, and we had a, a desire to go there. Mm-hmm. So I told this lady in Florida, we're going to stop in South Carolina for a day or two on our way down. And she gave me a phone number. I called a woman that lived near the Louis Gregory Baha'i Institute, called her up, and I said, hi, you don't know me, but now my name's Phyllis, and my husband Gene and I are travel teaching, and... We'd like to stop in your area for a day or two and be of service, if we could be. And I said, oh, and by the way, my husband's a graphic designer. And this woman got so excited, I thought she was going to faint. She just kept saying this prayer. She kept saying, thank you, God, thank you, God, and going on and on. I thought, what the heck is going on with this lady? And she finally told me that in a a town down there in South Carolina, uh, it was a, a town where they had about... 60% of the population, is that right? About 60% is African American and 40% white, a town where previously, like most towns in the South, the uh, political control had been in the hands of white citizens and then very recently that had all turned around and they elected an all-black city council and a black mayor and fire chief and all this and the town was kind of up for grabs and the white citizens were afraid and... It was all very uh, nerve wracking, I think, for a lot of folks. And so the mayor had uh, gotten to, he had contacted the local Baha'is because he knew Baha'is did race unity work. And they had together come up with this plan to proclaim nine weeks for racial unity Mm. in this town. And they were going to have a series of workshops on creating unity. And uh, the Baha'is had agreed to provide facilitators for these workshops but they had only somebody to do the first one. They didn't have anybody to do the other eight, but they had agreed on faith, I guess, and then had spent the the next week trying to find somebody to do the rest of them to no avail. And the night before I called, they'd had an all-night prayer session beseeching God to send them some travel teachers, and if it wouldn't be too much trouble, somebody that could do graphic design to help with all of their... (laughs) Their posters and advertising and things. So that's why when I called her, she was so excited. And what was supposed to be a two-day visit turned into a a two-and-a-half-month
0: visit. What? Oh, really?
2: Two-and-a-half months. We never did get to Florida. (laughs) We ended up doing the entire, facilitating the entire remaining sessions of the 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 workshops. Yes. And uh, it it just changed us, changed Mm. us completely.
1: What was so special about that time, I think it was very formative for both of us, Um, just speaking for myself, um, I felt embraced by people from whom I had been virtually separated my whole life. We had wonderful conversations as we were putting up our flyers and store windows and so forth. We got to know the people that were the participants in the workshops Mm -hmm. who then invited us to their homes for dinner, invited us to their churches to worship, took time with us to sort of educate us about how it was for them living Mm -hmm. down there, you know. So that was very formative, and we heard many, many stories. People shared many stories. Mm -hmm. And then when we left and we traveled around in other places in in the States, we heard the same stories, just from different people in different Mm -hmm. places. So Mm -hmm. for us, the whole whole picture of uh, the racial climate, so to speak, was a matter of connecting the dots. Yeah. it's not it, it, the, the what we learned i guess is that racism isn't just something that happens in one little area or in in, in one part of the city it's pretty pretty widespread mm. as we as i mentioned as we traveled um people shared stories with us and it's not the reason we were let me say what happened is when we entered south carolina I think I was driving, I looked over and I said to Phyllis, did you feel that? We had just come out of North Carolina, across the border into South Carolina, and I felt something. I don't know what it is. You know, I could guess, I could speculate, but it was definitely something. I looked over at Phyllis, I said, did you feel that? She said, yeah. And we've been wondering what that was. I have a feeling it has something to do with the spirit of that particular state, with the, you know, the history I don't know. I wouldn't even want to start really trying to break it down and, and, and limit it. But it was definitely something. Something w- and, and from that moment on, like I said, through the, uh, the generous efforts that people made with us, taking us into their homes and churches and so forth, and then elsewhere where people did the same things, we, we felt something different with uh, each encounter with somebody. I personally felt like something in me was being recognized and validated as never before, mm-hmm. like a, among my previous peers which, uh, were, who were all white. Mm-hmm. So that was really important to me because then I started seeing it myself. Mm-hmm. And that changed the way I related to people. But there was an energy that we both felt in these interactions mm-hmm. with people, the people that, that we had been separated from. And we kind of became hungry for that energy. We kind of referred to it as the magic or something like mm-hmm. that. And so as we traveled and made presentations to groups along the way, we shared these stories. And also we shared stories about ourselves, how we had changed and why we had changed and what we had learned. Mm. And how we were different. Mm-hmm. And people were telling us that that was the most important. The, the personal stories were the most important part of our presentations. Mm. And then at some point somebody encouraged us to write a book, and so that's our current effort at the moment.
0: And what is the title of the book?
2: Well, the working title, it's not, okay. the, it's not the final official title mm-hmm. yet because we are, we are not at that point yet with a, with a publisher. Mm-hmm. But the working title is Longing Stories of Racial Healing. Mm-hmm. And the reason we chose the word longing well actually the reason we chose it is because it came from a rap that I <laughs> Oh really? <laughs> one one day we were in in uh, Atlanta and we both made up we were with a friend who does raps and her children were rapping her teenage children and her and their friends were having a rap Battle in the living room, and we got inspired, so we <laughs> we created our own raps, which is a little amusing, but anyhow <laughs> there was a, there was a, an expression of longing in one of them, and mm-hmm. that was I think where we took the book fr- the book title from mm-hmm. and I was thinking about one of the things i didn 't mention be, uh, when when our uh, kids were still teenagers, we went to a conference. In Chicago, and it was called the Vanguard of the Dawning. That was the title of the conference, Vanguard of the Dawning, and it was a conference that was organized by African American Bahais for the specific purpose of looking at their role as people of color in the Baha'i Faith. What their what their role was, uh, what their history was, how they wanted to use their particular experience as Black Bahais in service to the faith. Mm-hmm. And we they said the conference was open to everybody, and we believed them, so we went. It was a very moving experience. And at one point during this conference, I had kind of a, I hate to say an epiphany, that's such an overused word, but it was kind of one of these realizations that hits you on the head like a baby grand piano, you know. And it what it was was I thought about this, a movie that I had seen a long time before about a girl that, had been adopted when she was born, and her parents never told her that she was adopted until she became 21 years old or something like that. And then they said, yes, you're adopted, we're not your real parents, and you do have brothers and sisters out there somewhere. And mm-hmm. This girl then became obsessed with finding her family, mm-hmm. her, her parents and her biological siblings. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting at this, this Vanguard of the Dawning Conference and thinking, that's what happened to me. We were separated at birth. We were separated from our brothers and sisters because mm-hmm. we were white and they were black, and that society uh, conspires to keep us apart. Mm-hmm. And and this is my family, and I don't mm-hmm. even know them. And how can I even know who I am if I don't know my brothers and sisters? And it kind of became this longing mm-hmm. to find my family and to connect to reconnect with my family, mm-hmm. and that is a theme that has stayed with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people say, what drives you? What drives you to do this work? Don't you get tired of it or things like that? And I say the thing that drives me is the images of these these people that I love that resides in my heart. Their faces mm-hmm. reside in my heart. I carry them with me. You know, That's what drives me. Right. Uh, the desire to do anything I can do to make... This world we live in a place that 's more bearable for them and friendlier to them you know mm-hmm. that 's what this this journey i mean it 's been nine years now that we 've been on the road for most of that time or for a good part of that time we were doing race unity workshops. We developed a format and we mm-hmm. were presenting workshops mm-hmm. uh, for different community organizations or for the Baha 'i communities. Uh, mm-hmm. We did a few at some universities and things. Mm-hmm. But it, the whole time we were doing that, it was these personal uh, relationships mm-hmm. that was the, the main I don't know the main motivating force behind what we were doing. You know, the, the Baha'i teachings say that we are one human family, and that's a concept. But when you start having these loving relationships with people, it becomes more than a concept. It becomes your concrete reality. Mm-hmm. and suddenly you want to do whatever you can. To make this oneness a reality mm-hmm. on on all levels, and so our this is how we started writing the book and we mm-hmm. we kind of we left off with the workshops and started focusing on these stories about how we had changed as a result of mm-hmm. of connecting with folks mostly african american friends we've had we've formed some friendships with people that were uh, Native American from different tribes around the country and uh, Latino friends and so forth. Our book focuses mainly, though, on this issue of black and white.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, have you really been on the road for nine years? Mm-hmm. You've been in your 22-foot RV? Uh, no, actually... RV, or have you upgraded <laughs> since then?
2: We upgraded. We were we were on the verge of killing each other. <laughs> Twenty. I mean, you just don't know until you've stepped into an area that is 22 feet by 8 feet. And imagine living in it with another person for two and a half years. Then you
1: know. <laughs> We're, uh, the, the so-called work mm-hmm. is really an effort to build consciousness or enhance consciousness about w- this process that we perceive have, ha- happening in this country and indeed worldwide, mm-hmm. is what Baha'u'llah talks about when he says the earth is one country and mankind its citizens. Mm-hmm. So. We see this, you know, particularly in the states. We see this coming together. We see representatives from every group of the human family here, and it presents the the issue, the challenge of somehow making that work. And so, in Baha'i communities, in particular, you see folks that are attracted to the message of Baha'u'llah coming together in meetings and in social situations with very different cultural. Patterns uh, and facing these challenges head on is very interesting to observe, and so we're not we 're not trying to rescue any particular group of the human family we 're trying to understand what our role is, and, f- and for us particularly we 're trying to understand what our contribution as white citizens or european American citizens is to this process that that's taking place mm-hmm. this coming together and how do we fit in to this process what is the contribution that we make
0: mm-hmm. right. Now, what do us folks who are in one residence in one town sort of take for granted that folks who are like you all, who don't have a single residence address, have to deal with that maybe we could appreciate? You
2: take for granted the fact that you can have an HMO with a primary care physician, (laughs) and they're always there in the town you live in. (laughs) Uh, You take for granted the fact that you have... A refrigerator that's made out of metal, so that when people give you magnets, you have somewhere to put them. (laughs) You take for granted that you actually have wall space, so if somebody gives you a framed quotation, you have somewhere to hang it. (laughs) That you have a basement to put extra stuff that you don't need at the moment. Mm. Those are some of the things you take for granted, Mm. that you don't realize when you first get into a trailer how much you're going to miss them, Mm -hmm. or that you can go into the bedroom and close the door and be by yourself, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Those are yeah. some of the things that I miss. Yeah. I've, about, I've recently yeah. started doing art, and I make a painting. Oh, really? I make a painting, and then I walk around the trailer with it, thinking, okay, which window am I going to tape it on? Because, <laughs> Or tape it on our mirror. That's about my only options.
1: <laughs> How about you, Gene? Well, uh, there are some advantages, too. Okay. Yeah. Um, fewer things to, to mess with, no grass cutting, don't have I to don't sweat really. siding and roofs and stuff like that course mm-hmm. there are other things like because vibration road vibration loosens things there are things that need fixing from time to time you know and they're that's kind mm-hmm. of frustrating right. doesn't happen in your house unless you live in an earthquake zone <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah. when
2: you live in a house you don't have to empty your wastewater tank every week either
0: <laughs> back to the book for a second when do you think your book might come out
2: my hope is that it'll be within a year. Oh, great! But mm-hmm. I don't know that that'll happen. But that's what right. I'd like to see happen right. before we forget everything. You know?
0: <laughs> now, what does the future hold for you, too?
1: We actually have some real plans. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or some desires. Um, one of the one of the things that I'm working on is um, harking back to that three semesters I spent studying art education, where I learned. Uh, a little bit. I got acquainted with the idea of art and belief systems. The nature of the art process being so uh, being unique in that, in the process of pr- uh, producing art, the the student or the artist is making value choices hmm. at every s- step of the way. And so this this learning of how to make value choices and this cognizant of making that. Va- making value choices can be transferred laterally to other areas of life. So I'm, I'm investigating that. I'm reading books. I'm getting together with other Baha'i artists, and hopefully we can put something together that we can uh, put out there as a service to the, the community and beyond beyond the Baha'i community too, to anybody who wants to use it. Very interesting. So that's one of the things I'm involved in. And mm-hmm. uh, in addition to discovering that I can write, I have other things that I'd like to write about <laughs> What about you Phyllis?
2: well i 've recently discovered uh, art and which has been kind of interesting because my sister is an artist, and of course my husband Jean is an artist and mm. i 've always been i 've always been interested in writing and i 've always been a singer but i never but I never thought of myself as a drawer or a painter and mm. uh, just recently discovered that I wanted to, to start drawing and painting and took a few lessons and got some books so I'm just in the very beginning stages but I'm very excited about Mm. uh, learning how to express some spiritual concepts in my Mm. art that's my Mm. that's my desire and beyond that we we want to continue to be of service to the Baha'i communities Mm. and we continue to travel that much Mm. we know people keep asking well when are you going to settle down and our answer is, why should we settle down? <laughs> and uh, so I think at this point, yeah. we, that's not in our, in our near future.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I wish the best of luck to both of you, and hopefully I'll run to your traveling somewhere <laughs> in the future.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank yeah. you.
0: I asked Phyllis if she would sing for us and to give us a little background on the song.
2: Okay, I'll sing a, uh, I'll sing a prayer. It's a prayer I've always liked, but it's taken on more meaning to me recently because I sang it at the funeral of a friend of mine that died almost a year ago uh, out in the San Diego area. Mm. He was a person who lived his life as a hollow reed. He, mm. he, his goal was to empty himself as much as possible of himself so that he could be a channel for the love of God. Mm. And he walked through his life like that, and he was Mm. a great inspiration to me.
3: Mm.
2: So uh, I miss him quite a bit, and Mm. I sang this song at his funeral. So uh, his name is Aidan Maxwell, and I'll dedicate this song to him. Very good. Oh, God,
4: make me a hollow from which the pith of self hath been
0: you enjoyed that interview with Jean and Phyllis Unterschutz, a Baha'i couple who have been on the road for nearly 10 years promoting the principles of the Baha'i faith. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
5: Inside of you there's burning a secret shining star. And there's nobody as good as you At being who you are You're gonna find your own way So don't you worry about the rest Just live life like you mean it And be bop your best Cause you're magical and marvelous the voice inside of you that you can always trust, saying, "Be bop your best, give it the best you got." You're astonishing and wondrous. The implications here are simply thunderous. So baby, be bop, be bop, be bop your best, why not? You can't let people tell you, sell you, or compel you to be who you are appreciate and see them you don't need to try and be them just bebop your best and follow your own star the mark you leave is unerasable your apps are positively irreplaceable so baby bebop your best give it the best you got
3: Your, voice.
5: your best Trust your inner voice your best. Everything you do E-bop,
3: your best
5: When it's up to you Beep up your best Beep up. up. Beep up your best Nothing's going right E-bop,
3: your best
5: Someone's impressed When it gets intense Bebop your best It's always up to you To let your bitty 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 shine through Your tantalizing Mystery
1: You're the only you that'll ever be In
5: history
0: This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.